Have you ever found yourself in a situation where it would have been better to say less? We can all relate to that, right? Maybe you're in a conversation with somebody you haven't seen for a while, or it's a touchy situation, you talk, things are going well, and then you add one more sentence. You know, you ask one more question, you put your foot in your mouth, and things end up going the wrong direction. Sort of like the story about the man who lived in the mountains in the Northwest. He was out camping, and he was sitting beside a fire roasting a certain type of bird. And a park ranger came out of the trees around the opening and walked up to the fire and asked him, what are you eating for dinner? Uh, The man replied that he was, in fact, eating, going to be eating a seagull. A frown came over the park ranger's face, and he told, told the man that, it was, in fact, illegal, it was against the law to, to capture, kill, and eat a seagull, so he was going to have to give him a citation. The man responded by telling a story to the ranger about how he had been wandering in the woods for a while, and he he'd used up all his food, and he was feeling weak, and out of desperation, he saw the seagull, he captured it, and was going to eat it to preserve his strength. The ranger was sympathetic and told him that, well, this time I'll let you off easy. I'll just give you a warning. Uh, the, the man thanked him profusely. And, and just as the ranger was about to leave, he turned and asked, I'm just curious, by the way, I've never, never tasted it, obviously, but what does the seagull taste like? The camper said, well, I would place it somewhere between a spotted owl and a bald eagle. <laughs> okay. Sometimes it's better to say less, isn't it? The same could also be said of this text from Mark 14 that we're going to be looking at today. The situation is Jesus has been drugged in front of a a Sanhedrin for a trial in the middle of the night and, and he's being questioned. And we might be tempted to think that it would have been better for Jesus. Things would have gone a lot better for him if he had said less than he did. He seemed to start off that way. He took that tact initially, didn't he? We see from the text that he's asked a question. It says he remained silent. If we were in his shoes, we would have done the same thing. We would have measured our words and thought through, okay, is this going to make things worse? Is this going to inflame the situation? And and if we thought it might, we wouldn't have said it. But not Jesus. When he's asked a second question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus speaks. His words aren't careless. They're not off the cuff. They're not a mistake. His words are very deliberate, very intentional. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew precisely how his words would be received, and he knew perfectly well how those listening would respond to his answer. So what exactly did Jesus say that got him into such hot water? What does it reveal to us about who Jesus is and, and what he came to earth to do? What relevance do his words have for us today? And as we must always ask, when we read scripture and look at the life of Jesus Christ, how are we to respond? So let's set the context here. We began our sermon series, 24 hours, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, including the crucifixion. Last week when Pastor Wes, earlier in Mark 14, took us to the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the the details? Jesus is just after the Last Supper. He knows The cross is looming the next day. And so he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He wants to talk to his father. He wants time with him. And so he asks his three closest disciple friends, Peter, James, and John, to come along with him for moral support and for prayer support. But we see that they have a hard time staying awake. And Jesus, in the end, ends up by himself. 
Jesus is then betrayed by Judas Iscariot, also one of the 12 disciples. And now we come to this part of Mark 40, 14, where Jesus is dragged in front of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the evening. Now, what exactly is the Sanhedrin? Who are the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin, they were a group of 71 figures who were the, in a nutshell, they, they were the ruling religious leaders of, of Jesus' day. You see, even though Rome, the Roman Empire, encompassed Israel and the Holy Lands at that time, the Romans made a very smooth, savvy political move. They, they allowed this, the, the Jewish people to make some decisions, to have some autonomy in an effort to keep the peace. And so the Sanhedrin was that effort. They allowed this, this group, these religious leaders, to, to make decisions regarding and laws regarding religious and spiritual life with the Jewish people. Now, without question, we need to say from the beginning that the Sanhedrin, they were, by and large, good and decent people. They had no doubt risen to positions of power and prominence because they were well-educated. People respected them. They were admired. They were trusted for the most part. Um, they were, in a sense, they were community and spiritual leaders. Yet they see in Jesus a threat. They must have been thinking that <laughs> if the people begin to listen to him and listen to his authority, then we're out of luck. We'll begin to lose our position, our privilege, our control. And, and that, that fear of that loss led them to do some terrible things. It led them to falsify charges against Jesus. It led them to, to bend the law and try him in the middle of the night, which is contrary to Jewish law. He didn't have a lawyer. He didn't have a legal representative. And ultimately, it led them to suggest, very strongly recommend, that he needed to be put to death. Now, this is just the first trial in, in the last 24 hours of Jesus. This is the Jewish trial, but there was another trial to come, and we'll be looking at that in a few weeks. That was the trial that Jesus had before Pontius Pilate. Why was that needed? Well, the Jewish leaders did not have the authority to carry out death sentences. They could make recommendations if somebody in their mind broke Jewish law, but they did not have the authority to carry out death sentences. Only the Roman Empire could do that. And so their, their, their aim in this trial, in the middle of the night, was to find evidence that Jesus had committed some sort of terrible crime against the Jewish law that would be worthy of death. But they fell miserably. You know, the, the trial's a travesty from beginning to end. Mark 14 tells us of failed attempts to produce witnesses against Jesus, but they can't get their stories straight. Nothing sticks. And then we come to the climax of the story. The high priest steps in. Caiaphas is his name. He steps in. The top dog. Nobody else is getting traction, so he's going to bring in the, the top lawyer, in a sense. He is going to ask questions to get Jesus to incriminate himself. The first question is unsuccessful. Jesus remains silent. But then Caiaphas asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And coming on the clouds of heaven, the response is swift and it's harsh and it's shocking. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. So what was it that Jesus said that was so outrageous, so, so threatening? 
so blasphemous that these community spiritual leaders, as verse 64 says, condemn him as worthy of death. It has to go to what Jesus says, the identity of who he said he was. You know, when I was in college, um, I took uh, some upper-level history classes during my junior or senior year. I can't remember which it was. And uh, there were some graduate <laughs> students in there as well. And, and one of them was a, a man from Bangladesh. He was in his probably early 30s at the time, maybe. Um, he had left his family in Bangladesh to come to the U.S. to get his master's and Ph.D. in history. And as I heard his story, it was really pretty impressive. Um, kind of put, put me to shame. He, he came here knowing that he would not be able to return for five or six years until he finished his degree. He, w- he could not afford to bring his family over either. So he would not see his kids or his wife for five to six years. But he said it was, a, it was a great sacrifice, but it would be worth it because he could return, get a job as a history professor in a university and, and take care of his family and raise their level of, of life and living. We became friends and to the point where he invited me to his house one night for dinner. And... Um, and he served me goat with curry, which was really good, but very, very hot. I mean, I never have sweated so much. But we had a great conversation. But I got there a little after 5 o'clock, and I wasn't thinking. I mean, he, he was a Muslim man. I knew that. He knew I was a Christian. We had, ta- had a few brief conversations about that. But I, I got there, and I interrupted his, his evening prayers. Uh, he was very gracious. He said, step inside. I stepped into it. was just a one-room apartment. I stepped inside, sat in the corner, tried not to look at him, give him some privacy, and he finished his prayers. Well, after dinner, we began to talk more and more about God, what we believed. He was curious about my faith. I was curious about his. And so we began to compare notes and talk, and it came to the person of Jesus Christ. I told him what I believed and why I believed it. And he said, well, I respect Jesus. He was obviously a good man. He was a very important prophet like Muhammad, but he was certainly not God. He did not understand why Christians believe that he was. You know, many people will say that Christians overstate and misunderstand who Jesus was, who he said he was. They say, well, he was a great teacher. He was obviously an important historical figure, maybe the most important ever, but he was not God. He never claimed divinity. To be God, they say. But that's not true. I mean, if you, if you study Jesus' words, on several occasions he makes claims to be the Son of God, equal to God the Father, such as this passage here in Mark 14. A little background on, before we look at Jesus, his answer here. Um, remember the story of Moses and the burning bush? It's back in Exodus 3. Remember the context? The people of Israel are in slavery, have been in Egypt for several hundred years. Moses is off in the desert. He's the Israelite, but he's kind of run away from his responsibilities. And God approaches him through a burning bush and tells him to go to Egypt, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, Moses is understandably a little bit nervous, a little bit reluctant. And he asks God, whom shall I say has sent me? In other words, he wants to know who's talking to me. He wants to know who is sending me. Remember God's response? In Exodus 3, it says, I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say. I am has sent me to you. And over the years, the people of, of Israel took that name of God, I am, as such a holy and reverent name that they, they generally wouldn't say it out loud. They wouldn't even write it down. And so when Jesus responds to Caiaphas' question, 
Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? When Jesus answers with, I am, it's very clear what he is saying. It's very clear that he was saying he was God's son, that he was divine. And it's very clear from Caiaphas' response that he understood what Jesus was saying. He ripped his clothes and he said it was blasphemous and they turned on him. Now, there are other places in the Gospels as well where Jesus says things where it's clear that Jesus identified himself as the son of God, as God himself. For example, in John chapter 5, we find another situation where Jesus has a run in with some religious leaders over something that he says. He gets into trouble because he, he helps people, he heals people on the Sabbath, which in their understanding, their legalistic understanding of the law was not allowed. They put the letter of the law above the spirit of the law. And this is what Jesus said that got him into such hot water in John 5. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life in whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So just like in Mark 14, Jesus' response to the angry leaders here in in John 5 is not only that I'm the son of God, equal with the father, but I'm also sovereign over life and judgment. Jesus is, is broadening his claim to be God. Not only he says, do I have the right to do work on the Sabbath because I'm the son of God, I'm doing my father's work. I also have power to give life and to judge something which in the Old Testament understanding of the Jewish people today would have been blasphemous because that's something that only God can do. And people generally don't like it when someone else, a mere human, claims God's position and power. Think about it this way. A couple different analogies. Suppose you've got, I don't know, say three kids. Okay. And uh, say the youngest one is two or three years old and the others are maybe a couple years old, a couple years older, you know, early grade school. And the youngest one, for whatever reason, takes it upon him or herself to be the authority. And so they're always watching to see what the other two do wrong. And correct them. You shouldn't do that. That's wrong. That's not nice. That's bad. Go to time out. That's not going to go over very well, will it? No. Why? Because he's a little brother. Correction or judgment is never received well from a younger sibling. It's not their job. It's not their place. Or think about it this way. Say you're sitting in a courtroom and it's time for the sentence to be given out. And somebody besides the judge does it. Somebody pops up from the courtroom, a bystander, and gives the sentence. Or maybe you're at work and somebody who's new to the job, a new position, entry-level job, and you're, you're high up on the chain of command, and they come in at the, and give you the yearly evaluation and evaluate your work. There would be an uproar, right? That doesn't sit well with people. Back to Mark 14 and Jesus' answer. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man and that he will be sitting at the right hand of God, the Mighty One. And the right hand of God is understood to be the place of power and of judgment and authority. He is stating that he has the authority to judge all of humankind. That did not sit well with those listeners. George Willie might recognize that name. He's a, a, a writer, columnist, um, 
does editorials and things like that. But he's also a big baseball fan. And he writes in a book called Men at Work this. He write, he's writing about baseball umps. He says, baseball umpires are carved from granite and stuffed with microchips. They are professional dispensers of pure justice. Once when Babe Pinelli called Babe Ruth out on strikes, Ruth made a populist argument. Ruth reasoned fallaciously, as populists do, from raw numbers to moral weight. There are 40,000 people here who know the last one was a ball, tomato head. Pinelli replied, maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts. The same is true for us. When it comes to Judgment Day, when it comes to an evaluation of our lives and our actions, there's only one opinion that counts. The opinion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. So back now to John chapter 5, this time verse 24. One more claim that Jesus makes. Here he claims he has a power and authority to condemn and a power and authority to give eternal life. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now, just in case anybody here is confused and thinking that we'll be judged and receive eternal life based upon how good our life is, let me emphasize that's, that's not what the Bible says and teaches. Jesus did not say that. He says that we'll be held accountable for the way we live our lives, whether good or bad, but that the basis of eternal life is not our good works. It's belief in Jesus Christ. It's faith in him alone. And Jesus, to emphasize it, says, I tell you the truth. If anyone hears my words and believes that I am the Son of God, that person will be saved. You know, Jesus makes some incredible claims about himself in the Gospels. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the resurrection and life, and so on and so forth, many, many other things. He said this about himself in John fourteen nine: Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus claimed to be God. He could have said a lot less. It would have been a lot less trouble in his life. But he didn't. And if he claimed to be God, then we have a decision to make about him, don't we? If Jesus Christ is in fact God, then his words and life must be valued, studied, and applied as the most valuable thing on earth. If Jesus Christ is in fact God, then the only wise choice is to follow him. And if Jesus Christ is in fact God, the only fitting thing is to fall down in worship and to give and surrender our lives to him. One last illustration or quote. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, how he puts it. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus, such as I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, he says, we must not say. A man who is merely a man, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, crazy, insane, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, Lewis writes. You can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. I mean, in the end, the question that we need to be able to answer is, what do we believe about Jesus Christ? Who do we say that he is, that he, that he was? Was he, in fact, the Son of God? 
Is he, in fact, the only Savior, the Redeemer? Is he, in fact, Lord of Lords and, and King of Kings? Is, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the (laughs) words that are recorded about Jesus' life and his teaching. And Father, we, um, we come before you when we... We, we say that we are people of faith. We do believe that you are the Son of God. We do believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, we do believe in you, Lord Jesus. For those of us this morning who, um, who believe that but sometimes doubt, affirm that in our hearts and our minds. For those of you, perhaps this morning who have not taken that step of belief, who can't say that, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be burning in their heart, even at this moment, that they would sense you drawing them to you, that they would sense that your words are true, that they would, through your Holy Spirit, sense the very presence of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may they put their trust in you, Lord. May they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that you are Lord that you died on a cross for our sins, that you were risen from the dead, that we might have eternal life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. And we offer ourselves to you in worship and in praise. Help us to believe and to follow you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.